Um, so, hello and welcome back to Conversations with Essa, the podcast where we chat about all things economics. My name is Les, and I'm a first-year Bachelor of Commerce and IT student at Monash Clayton. And today I'm joined um, with my co-host, Grace. Grace, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm also a first-year studying Commerce and Biomedicine at Monash University. So this is the second episode of a new four-part series where we will be providing you with an insight into a into the careers pathways available to economic majors and what it's like to work in these different industries. Last episode, we interviewed Wayne Geerling, who is a senior lecturer in economics at Monash, about his career in the ex- education sector. Um, you know, Wayne spoke about the future of economics education, teaching using pop culture, and some advice for students interested in, in their career in economics. For this episode, we will answer the following questions. So, what is it like to work in the Department of Treasury and Finance? What are the benefits of working in the public sector? What is the process for generating public policy advice? So, in this new episode of um, Conversations with Essa, we will be interviewing Anthony Wasseter, who has an honours degree in econometrics and mathematics. Anthony is a senior economist for the Department of Treasury and Finance, Victoria. Some of Anthony's achievements include developing economic forecasting frameworks while at Tasmanian Treasury and leading commercial tenancy policy work as part of the Victorian government's coronavirus emergency response and coordinating policy development on road-related revenue reform options at the DTF in Victoria. How are you today, Anthony? Well, thank you and thank you very much for that lovely introduction, Grace, and uh, for your introduction to Les. So, um, just a bit of overview. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your student days? Well, I guess in terms of my background in economics, so as an undergraduate, I studied a Bachelor of Economics and a Bachelor of Science and then ended up doing honours in both. So my my scientific studies were in my, my science studies were in mathematics and statistics. So um, fairly early on, fairly early on, before I got to university, I was quite interested in the quantitative aspects, and I was fortunate enough to do in, in my year eleven do work experience at Queensland Treasury, where I was in the microeconomic policy area of the department, and it would be fairly unusual, I think, to throw. Um, what was then known as the Monash Arani model, and now um, various variants, including VIRM, um, Victoria, the Victoria University Regional Model, um, to a Year 11 student. But they threw it at me, and my job was to try and understand some of that and also work on a policy briefing for, for the Treasurer. That sort of got me interested in keeping on going in the, with the idea of that it would be important to have a good quantitative base to study and continue working as in economics. And that's primarily why I did the double degree. Um, and then I continued my studies in, I, I did actually, as I said, I did two honours degrees, which is somewhat unusual. Um, so I did my honours year in mathematics and then honours year in uh, economics, majoring in econometrics. So um, that, was an, that was an interesting point. I was fortunate during that first um, first uh, honours year, I was successfully um, obtained the cadetship at the Reserve Bank and 
that sort of then promoted me into, uh, and when I accepted that offer after the work experience period, they offered me continuing employment. Um, I then started the following February. So 2004, February, I started in at the Reserve Bank in the ethnic group there. Um, did a lot of research, thought, you know, it would be good having a quantitative base and interesting research that I should continue studying. Um, and thereafter, hence my slightly potted attempt at getting a PhD, which is, uh, as I think I noted to you, Les, earlier, is still ongoing um, for various factors, some related to, mostly related to my own health. Um, I've had, I've been through three universities. Um, one, I had to leave in the US, so I was at MIT for a little over a semester, but I ended up getting hospitalised. And these are some of the things in any career that end up being quite non-linear. So um, because of health concerns, I came back to Australia. I was able to get work in the State Treasury Department in Tasmania. So that's where I, I did a lot of public policy work um, that was very interesting and topical at the time. You know, being in the macroeconomic forecasting area when the GFC is happening, right in the middle of the GFC, mind you, and also when the um, when the CPRS, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, um, the Rudd, the Commonwealth governments under under Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister, their first attempt at a carbon sort of carbon pricing mechanism that work was going on at the same time. So I got to cut my teeth on some fairly interesting very interesting policy work and some forecasting work at that time. And then I've been in, uh, I decided to move to Melbourne, um, ostensibly also to pursue another PhD uh, attempt, but this time in Australia. Um, first at La Trobe University um, in 2011, uh, and then I moved to Monash University um, also mainly because of some restructures at the Trove that made my uh, principal supervisor redundant. So I started, started transferred to Monash University because again, then again, um, personal matters and health intervened. And so I'm currently withdrawn from the PhD in good standing with the idea of returning to that and finishing that work um, in a, at a slower pace. But these are one of, so these are some of the things to think about in terms of um, if you are interested in doing that further study, um, and I guess that's one of the points, try and do it when you're earlier on in the career and before you have other things like health problems or other issues intervene. And sometimes these things happen and, well, for whatever reason, you may not be able to finish what you aim for. But you can still have fun along the way. Yeah, thank you for that description about your career journey. So, um, can you give us um, like some explanation or like um, some uh, insight into your day-to-day -day job and what it entails? Look, I guess one of the things to bear in mind in, in the public service is that there is often not a regular day-to-day. -day. Um, you will be doing some core work. Some of it will involve um, research on policy matters, potential policy reform options. That will be longer term. And then you'll have a mix of briefings for cabinet, briefings for ministers, um, responding and coordinating work with other departments, particularly if you're in a what they call a central agency, that is um, 
the tre uh, Treasury, Finance or Premier and Cabinet, either the state level or Prime Minister and Cabinet at the Commonwealth level, those are considered central agencies. They don't, as a general rule, they don't deliver services, but they are a coordinating body. And so what often the response of those departments is to deal with other departments in some of their proposals and also work collaboratively with those departments. So a lot of time is actually spent talking with people who aren't economists. Um, you don't necessarily, um, I think yesterday and, and over the last few days, I've been people speaking to people with backgrounds in environmental science, um, various forms of business studies, um, law, it, it, uh, and some engineers as well. So it really just, and, and IT people as well. Um, so it really just depends on the nature of your work, exactly what you'll be doing. You could be, so in some of my previous roles, I've been working on economic and revenue forecasting. So that's much more, generally a much more defined task. You'd be involved in briefing, uh, providing briefing on, uh, say, Australian Bureau of Statistics releases or other data releases, as well as fine-tuning forecasting models and developing forecasts normally at least twice a year for the government. And at other times, you'll be working on much more longer-term policy work. So in some cases, in my previous roles in Treasury, I've worked on multi-year projects. Um, that have involved collaboration with Commonwealth government departments or other state government departments and agencies. So the the role is not, um, I would not consider it as a standard day-to-day -day job. You'll have a mix of work. And that's one of the good things about the, if you like variety, that's one of the good things about working in the public service. Um, you have the opportunity to move around, you have the opportunity to move work with a range of other people and if that's what interests you, working sort of around policy issues and thinking about how to how we can improve the lives and well-being of Victorians, as is the DTF uh, mission statement, then a career in public service may be for you. I hope that answers. I hope that answers the question in a in a in a slightly interesting way because it. It really is the case that there is no standard standard day in the life of someone who's a public servant. Yeah, wow. So that is um, quite interesting how you just don't have a set kind of um, job day to day. And um, I guess what I found most interesting that I want to ask more about is, do you find it difficult to speak with um, people who may not have the um, extensive econometrics expertise um, in your in your book? Uh, not at all. I mean, one of the big things is with any job is translation, particularly if you're working with the public or you're working with people who are other, who are trained in other disciplines. Um, the public service has a lot of different skill sets within it to do the, to do the roles that it, it plays in society. And it means that you have to be able to um, work with a lot of other disciplines. It, it means that and getting on to perhaps some of the lessons for thinking about a career in the public service, being able to be open and discuss things and be able to translate economic concepts into, um, into terms that others can understand 
without that necessary technical knowledge. I mean, um, some work that I've done previous, well, recently um, in my role, which I think you'll get to, is I'm also a research affiliate with a, a Melbourne University Research Centre. That work actually stemmed from work I started in Treasury, but in that work I've been talking to people with backgrounds in, say, environmental science or ecology and try to translate things that are quite detailed mathematical models, but then put a simple front end on it and put some language around it that people can understand both the, so the, at the cursory level, at least enough to do the, the role that they need to do, understand the math, mathematics to the extent they need to, and also understand the economics underpinning some of those other, other aspects. So a lot of this work is about translation. It's not about, um, it, it's not about just the technical detail. Getting the technical detail right is incredibly important, but it's that ability to translate that's also really valuable. Because without that translation, you won't have the influence. That's a great segue into the next question. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the last paper you published? Okay, so this is this is probably going to throw you a little bit too. I've, um, as well as being an economist, um, I'm also a statistician, so by training. And the most recent paper that is, that's just been accepted as of two days ago is actually into a dermatology journal. So I've been working and doing some statistical modelling, um, basically a meta-analysis of some published research in uh, dermatology. Uh, looking at um, uh, hyaluronic acid uh, fillers. So things like fillers for um, getting rid of uh, wrinkles on your face. And given that um, I'm sort of of that age where I probably need to think about it, it's, it's quite interesting <laughs> to just think about. Um, it's to do with some procedural techniques, but it's a statistical analysis. So that's just been accepted into a, um, uh, the journal Dermatologic Therapy. So it's, uh, as you can see, I, I'm sort of a little bit of a, have fairly eclectic interests and uh, work fairly broadly. Yes, that was very interesting. Um, so I guess um, uh, another question we wanted to ask you is like, what are your favorite parts about your job? I think I've emphasized this already. It's the variety. Um, one of the things that I found working early in my career is that I found real interest in not just focusing sing, uh, singularly, singularly on one single problem and then trying to mine it and mine it and mine it, which is often the way that, I guess, contrasting perhaps with an academic approach, that tends to be what happens. You go into a fairly narrow field and then you try and become a real expert at it and you go and do further work and refine and refine and you publish more papers in this sort of fairly narrowly contained field. For me, uh, what I found interesting is working across a variety of projects. Um, and that's that for me is the big plus of working in, um, in a department, particularly like um, Treasury and Finance, or I don't have first-hand experience, but similarly in something like the Department of Premier and Cabinet, where you can, where you are required to really work across a, a range of things. I mean, in the last, 
If I think about it, in the last year or so, I've worked on projects that relate to justice demand forecasting, various issues in terms of government insurance, uh, well, insurance policy and risk management. There's also been the coronavirus um, response work that I've done on mainly on commercial tenancies, but also on residential tenancies as well as um, what probably is more the core of my standard job, which is around transport policy. Um, that's what I work on at the moment. But that does, which involves sort of public transport, ports and freight, um, as well as road policy. So it's all quite broad and being able to get across a pretty big brief and get up to speed quickly is important. But I mean, for me, the variety as well as the potential to influence, um, because it seems like, well, at least on the face of it, some of the work that um, has been done during the coronavirus pa pandemic, we're seeing, I guess, the effects now. Uh, and that's the interesting thing. It's immediate. You can see the relevance. You also get that feedback. It's like that's... Um, that sense that um, you'll feel that you've got accomplishment. There's something that you're doing for the greater good of society, not um, not so much a particular, uh, say, a profit motive, but it's improving the well-being of Victorians or Australians. So, would you say your job is suitable for someone who, you know, really enjoys um, looking at data and who who has really strong quantitative skills? Absolutely. There will be jobs in the public service that will deal uh, more exclusively with data. There are teams and teams in various departments who will pour much more exclusively over, over data. There is the uh, Victorian Centre for Data Insights. There is the, in the Department of Premier and Cabinet, there are economic and revenue forecasting teams in Treasury that will deal a lot with econometrics and all the... Uh, to my knowledge, all the departments have some form of function where there is evaluation. There are transport network analytics areas in the Department of Transport. You've got data everywhere across government. Data is critical to decision making. And so if you, if you really want to pursue a highly quantitative role, there is that option. Uh, so you can really find your... The way I think about the public service is you can find the parts, parts and the paths within that to support your own career objectives, whatever they may be, and support your interests. Um, as I sort of suggested, my interests are fairly eclectic, and so that means that I've um, gone down quite a number of paths in my career. I sort of haven't tended to focus exclusively on, on one thing and then continue doing it. I've enjoyed the opportunity to be a bit broader. Well, that's eye-opening, um, seeing how many different departments have um, that use quantitative data uh, absolutely it's just I can't overemphasize that data is a key input to decision making so can you tell us a little bit about um, you already kind of touched on this but can you explicitly state the skills you would need to be um, someone like you in your role I guess there's a there's a real distinction in terms of the types of skills um, that are required, but at a really basic level, if you're looking for more a policy analyst type role, where a lot of economists work, um, what 
is required is less so a very firm theoretical framework um, and, and in-depth theoretical knowledge. I mean, I've never, um, at least not in my in my non-academic work, I have never had to um, solve a constrained optimization problem using Lagrange multipliers or any of those other techniques that often come from higher level economics. Um, what you'll tend to find is the benefits and the value of an economics degree are building in that framework, an understanding of trade-offs, an understanding of potential aspects of strategic behaviour. So this is even just being able to diagnose potential um, you know, game theory type responses in terms of uh, potential strategic responses, say you're working on bargaining, say. There are all sorts of general frameworks that I guess um, you're bringing through that sort of technical school as a um, sort of equivalent to a sort of a second year micro or second year macro type level intuition and having a good framework for how to think through issues, how to construct um, options, how to analyse things. And it doesn't need to be analysing data. In some cases, it will be analysing data, uh, but it doesn't always have to be that it's about the idea of a policy development process where you're able to describe the problem, identify potential options, um, assess those options against some form of criteria, which may be involve some quantitative methods like a cost-benefit analysis or, or something like that, and then be able to provide recommendations to government on how they should proceed based on the costs and benefits, the trade-offs, all of those other, other policy merit aspects be able to come through and it's that clear level of thinking that really has to go through all of your policy work and that's sort of the policy framework that I would tend to adopt and therefore think about in my day-to-day -day work. On top of those more generic or general skills some roles will require a much more quantitative basis so that's where understanding of spreadsheets perhaps experiencing programs like R um, or occasionally Python, it depends on which department and what you're doing with the data. Um, there are all sorts of programs that people can use. So you may need some, for some roles you'll need that data experience, you might even need some information management experience. At the other, I guess those are sort of the technical skills, but a lot of the work of the public service relies on people who have good communication skills. So this relies on effective communication skills, but also things like being able to negotiate, be able to represent people in meetings, being able to speak up and articulate particular points of view um, and persuade people, convince people that your arguments are appropriate because within the public service, there are likely going to be uh, different points of view that you're going to encounter throughout your career and you're going to have to try to persuade or perhaps even reflect in your own views and modify your own position or the own recommendations in light of new information provided by someone else. But it's those soft skills both in written and oral communication and negotiation that are absolutely vital. And as I said before, indicated um, before, the idea of being able to work with a broad range of other people. Um, Sometimes you will have to deal with members of the public. Sometimes you will be talking to um, interest groups 
you know, peak bodies. So you'll need to be able to be flexible and understand how you can communicate and how you can how you can understand uh, someone else's point of view from the point of getting information for helping develop public policy. So it's a, a broad range of skills, both technical yeah. and soft skills, and what we often call soft skills. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You can't always, you know, two people can't always agree on something. So I, I believe communication is would be a really big skill to have. Absolutely. I don't I think the one of the I know that we'll talk about the specifics of the coronavirus pandemic, but one of the uh, the things that I've encountered is around communication is absolutely vital to try and persuade and try and align people. Because if you've only got five hours to write a cabinet submission um, or a cabinet committee submission, which has indeed happened fairly recently for, for me. So that's the that's one of the things that I would think about uh, in terms of uh, that communication and that importance of being able to align people and persuade people, particularly at short notice, because if you've got those links before the pandemic or are able to develop them very swiftly during the pandemic, those sort of means of persuasion come in incredibly handy when you end up having to do something in half a day or less. So um, given your extensive um, experience in the um, public sector, so um, can you um, sort of talk us through how you would go about generating public policy advice for the government? I think I've already in part answered this question already, but perhaps it's worthwhile just repeating the ideas that a lot of it comes down to the development of you know, understanding what the problem is fundamentally. So there's an element of diagnosis that you've got to go through in, in any public policy aspect. And often there's no one single way of doing something. There could be a range of ways, and, and I'm not just talking um, legal mechanisms, I'm also talking from policy option perspective. So it's really being able to understand and distill those various options and then go through based on being able to, for instance, establish how you would rank or rate various options. So um, in terms of, say, as an exa example would be a cost-benefit analysis, you may need to do some something like that in terms of trying to prioritise or some form of multi-criteria analysis or just even a... Uh, just to think through, well, what are the what are the various options? What are the trade-offs? And then, okay, well, what's the recommended option for us to achieve particular objectives? Uh, which was most effective? What what about the costs involved? Who you know? Are there equity issues? As in, um, does it benefit one group over another? Or you know, what does it happen? What happens in terms of the distribution of costs and benefits? So all of those sort of things might come into play and then you, based on your criteria, you put forward a series of recommendations and be able to frame that. Sometimes you're going to be responding to someone else's analysis and you sort of have to almost do the same process but very, very rapidly. You might be responding to a cabinet submission, 20 pages with perhaps lots of attachments as well, and you have to go through and distill, have they characterised the problem appropriately? Are there op other options that they haven't considered? What's the, what's the nature of the advice? And be able to put something to 
um, in my case, the treasurer and assistant treasurer, but if you're working for another department, it will be your respective ministers ahead of a meeting. And so you need to be able to provide that advice and think through and provide the information that the treasurer or relevant ministers will need ahead of those discussions. Because ultimately, um, as public servants, unless you're somewhere where you have delegated authority, like you're the governor of the Reserve Bank, your decision makers are indeed ministers or cabinet. So it's important to be able to influence them in terms of the way you provide your advice to bring most effect to your position. So um, is there like a way that you measure the outcome of your like policy advice? It's often very difficult to do that, um, partly because there are so many inputs and, part, and because there are so many things that can happen in the room. Some of these are going to be discussions that are of a um, you know, policy nature. Some of them are going to be of a political nature. And I don't think we should shy away from saying that sometimes there are going to, politics does intervene. Um, it's not my place to comment on politics, though, as a public servant, but it's more that, um, so in my view, one should be aware that that is also a consideration, but you put forward your advice regardless. So it's sometimes um, useful or sometimes you're able to measure what the effect of your advice is. Other times it's not. You may, it depends also on the nature of the advice. Sometimes you get a cabinet submission and you might be saying, yes, um, uh, the recommendation is to the ministers to support all recommendations in the submission. Other times you might be saying, well, actually, we're going to request a different form of recommendation. Or there might be some discussion around the cabinet table that might relate to um, various measures or various alternative approaches. And through that sort of feedback, you may be able to gauge how influential your advice has been. But it's often an indirect measure. There's no sort of formal, formal um, measure of advice effectiveness. So as a senior economist at DTF, what have you learned about the coronavirus pandemic? Um, I think one thing that's come about and was always apparent before then, but perhaps it's this idea of soft skills, as I was mentioning before. Sometimes, and I don't think, in some circumstances, it's not unfair, but there is a perception that economists don't play well with others with other professions. So that has been a concern for me and I have seen some of that. Um, but ultimately, when you're in government, um, it's probably the biggest team effort because ultimately who you are serving is, when you're working in the public sector, that is, your ultimate clients are going to be the public. So it's always in that view and sometimes the things that you would think are first best solutions don't always get up. Um, you may have, there may be uh, second best, there may be 40th best, there may be 80th best solutions that end up coming, coming through. One of the challenges is, has been in the coronavirus pandemic is the need for rapid advice. Um, as others have commented to me, the public service is often geared around 
getting good processes in place, getting useful things done, but often speed is has not been of the essence. There's more often been these longer timelines where people are much more used to, oh, yes, well, I know that you know, X days before this cabinet meeting where I'm going to have to brief on this, I will receive the submission. So you'll have a week, well, up to a week, to prepare, for instance, those types of um, briefing or advice, or there'll be long timescales. Some of these things in the coronavirus pandemic have had to be implemented in days, if not sometimes hours. So the nature of advice and being able to do that sort of rapid translation has been so important. And that's what I mean, what I emphasised before in terms of communication. Communication has become vital. The ability to persuade and build alliances in short scale has been vital. The ability for people, say, in my role, to work with lawyers who are trying to draft regulations or legislation or make sure that things are accurately reflected. Um, so that something that um, we would like to do from a policy perspective can in fact be done legally. We have to be able to talk to or understand the perceptions of various big bodies or interest groups or people who will be affected by this. And often that has to be uh, worked out in quite rapid turnaround. So it's certainly a challenge. But if you get your skills hat on and have not only the technical skills, but also some of those soft skills there, it will put you in good stead for being able to deal with that rapid decision making. That's sort of my, what I've learned through this process. So if um, noting down the speed of, um, you talked about speed, do you think this would, you know, this pandemic would affect how things are done um, if a similar situation would happen in the future? From my perspective, it really depends on the willingness of people to engage in that speedy decision-making and understanding the trade-offs. That's often been a communication challenge, um, both within and beyond the public service. Um, this is a rapidly evolving situation. And one thing I think that has become more evident and some international conferences have picked up on this theme, that there needs to be much greater interplay between disciplines. For example, um, epidemiologists and economists. So to understand some of those interrelationships, for instance, between the models that epidemiologists use for understanding disease transmission, uh, the network models that economists use, and then understanding some of those broader implications. That's what I'd say. In terms of whether this all changes in terms of the speed, I'm not sure. Um, it's going to depend on people's willingness to be able to keep up that speed. It does get very difficult to maintain sort of speed and rapid decision-making and all of those protocols. Um, I'm sort of of that age where I remember... Um, there was a Commonwealth Treasury official who fronted a Senate estimates hearing. I th she had, I believe, two small children at the time and had, been work had worked on one thing 48 hours in a row. That's the sort of thing that will happen. Um, I haven't experienced quite that during this, but let's just say I did not have a day off over Easter when all of this was going on. Um, 
So it, it's just being able to be prepared to do that, and sometimes it's going to, it's going to be hard. I, in all honesty, I'm not sure that the public service would be. Uh, sorry, going back to your question, I think the public service would be prepared again to increase the speed. There is always the, that capacity to do so by refocusing, redeploying resources, but I'm not sure it's going to be. Uh, we'll be able to continue it um, when I guess the situation, if or when it settles down, and we turn return to some I guess some more uh, more con- more usual conventional situations. Okay, that was interesting insight into um the um government's coronavirus response. Um, just closing in closing, um, we're wondering if you have any advice to students who want to pursue a career path similar to you working in the public sector. Stay interested. Um, be read widely and work on those, not just your technical skills during university, but also work on and seek out opportunities to talk to people and understand what's going on. I was uh, very lucky in as an undergraduate. I did some work with the uh, with seat at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia um, in Brisbane. And I also had good ties and networks into the Economic Society of Australia Queensland branch, uh, given I was a student in Queensland at the time. That for me opened up a range of different policy areas and um, awareness of economics that I think you don't often get at university. And I encourage people to um, think about trying to get in touch with ESSA, for example, of course, or um, some of the professional bodies like the Economic Society of Australia, to be aware of what's going on, to read widely, to to think about and be able to consider, um, consider current debates you know, consider how you would frame advice in these types of things, how you might think through some of those issues according to sort of a, a policy paradigm. Think about trade-offs. Think about how you might communicate these things. Be interested. That's the, that's the main thing. Um, oftentimes people say um, the public service, it's often people go into the public service and not necessarily seeking monetary reward. There can be significant monetary reward involved in those careers, but you're more likely to get some sense of accomplishment. And so if that's what drives you, uh, that sense of accomplishment of making a difference, then certainly go and investigate your options in state, local and federal government. Okay, thank you, Anthony Rossiter, for your time. Um, I think we can wrap that up here. Um, Thank you. Once again, we're truly grateful for you coming along. Uh, Many thanks from the ESSA committee as well. So that's all for today. Big thank you to Anthony Rossiter for joining us. Um, We've learned about working in the public sector in the Department of Treasury and Finance and where a career in economics and econometrics could lead you to. Thank you for tuning in today and keep your eyes peeled for the next episode of Conversations with ESSA. In the next episode, we will be exploring opportunities in the private sector in the field of economics. Bye now.